This is a continuing reflection on the question, what can we know with certainty about Jesus of Nazareth? If we meet him on the road, how can we recognize him? My method here, with which I continue, is that what we can know for certain is what the earliest friends and followers of Jesus felt and thought and experienced of him. We have no way of proving beyond all doubt whether their perceptions and impressions were correct or incorrect. So far, we have noted that those closest to him believed him to be culturally and ethnically one of them, a Jewish peasant, that they acknowledged and honored him as a teacher and rabbi, believed him to be a prophet in the tradition of all of Israel's great prophets, a wisdom teacher like Israel's sages of old, and a holy man. To this list, I can now add that the friends and followers of Jesus obviously understood, without having to think much about it, that the most constant and consistent theme of his teaching was the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God, or the kingdom of heaven, they are the same thing, was a concept familiar to every first century Hebrew, and one heavily freighted with theological, spiritual, and emotional meaning. To refer to God's kingdom is to say the obvious, that God is a king, or that God is kingly in nature. The Hebrew understanding of what it means to be a king was rather different and more positive than our contemporary idea. Their very word, king, suggested for them a person of dignity. It suggested the state or quality of being worthy of honor and respect. The word dignity itself comes from an old Latin term meaning merit or worth. There's a difference, you know, between being praised and between being praiseworthy. Biblically, theologically, spiritually, God, it is thought, is praised because God is praiseworthy. God is, it comes to me just now, worthy of praise, and because praiseworthy merits or is worth listening to. I think it interesting that the biblical idea of obedience in both the Old and New Testaments is related to listening. To obey is to listen receptively, responsively. And if it is someone we respect, it is to listen with trust. This is then what it means to do the will of God, to listen to pay attention, to be aware of the rhythm, the flow, the movement of life and reality, and to move harmoniously with that rhythm. That is doing the will of God. Or we can say God has an intention for the universe and has, Christians believe, revealed that intention in the Old and New Testaments. It is God's desire 
design, plan, purpose, or will, that harmony, peace, love, justice, mercy, simple goodness, and knowledge of God's will fill the earth as the waters cover the sea, as Habakkuk put it in 2.14. The Jesuit William Berry, Catholic priest, author, and spiritual director, notes that Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech sounds like it could have been taken right from the book of Isaiah. That, says Father Berry, is because God has a dream and wants us to share that dream. God's dream is of a universe where there will be no more wars or even training for war. Such a universe would be one where human beings no longer fear one another, but love and care for one another. I think Barry is right about this, and I think he is right in picturing the will of God as the dream of God. Simply put then, the kingdom of God is where the kind intention, the loving purpose, the way of God's spirit, the dream of God is embraced and lived. If someone is loving, holds God in reverence, and respects the dignity of every human being, is kind and compassionate and just in their heart, and the kingdom of heaven is in them. And when people are just and generous in their actions, the kingdom of God is manifested in this world. God's will is done on earth, in that case, as in heaven. The simplest, most straightforward, easiest definition for the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven to keep in mind is that it is the reign or will of God in the hearts and minds and actions of the people who claim to love God. It is, of course, somewhat more complex than that. For example, when Jesus first Jesus's first listeners heard him speak of the kingdom, they would also have had in their minds several other complementary ideas. When they first heard Jesus speak of the kingdom of God, they also would have had in mind the following. One, they saw the kingdom of heaven as theocentric. That is, it originates with God. It comes from God and is, as already observed, the working of God's intent, will, or purpose. It is, from every angle, concerned with God. Two, they saw the kingdom of heaven as what the Dutch theologian Hermann Ritterbos called dynamical. They saw it as the breaking through of divine power. It is God's coming in power to judge injustice, to overcome evil, and to save humanity. It is full of power and energy. One way said Roderbos, in which this power is seen 
is that it throws humanity into a crisis so that we are required to make important decisions that determine our whole existence. Three, as people shaped by Hebrew culture and religion, they saw the kingdom as messianic. They believed as strongly as they believed anything that God had given a message of hope, of hope, to use an old-fashioned word, for the redemption of Israel. The prophet Daniel's vision of the Son of Man was familiar to all of them, the vision of one whose authority and power would transcend earthly power and dominion, one who would possess supernatural and divine dignity. In whatever ways they may have misunderstood what the coming of the Messiah or Christ ought to be, they most certainly saw the messianic theme and the kingdom of God, the, uh, the kingdom of heaven theme as one of them. That is, they understood Jesus' teaching of the kingdom to also be messianic teaching. Four, it is also clear that they understood Jesus to teach, no matter how confusing it may have been to them in the moment, that the kingdom of heaven is both present and future. That Jesus indi indicated that the kingdom was both a present reality to be lived and experienced and an eschatological reality. That it was also the consummation of the kingdom at the end of the world as a state of peace and happiness. So the friends and earliest followers of Jesus saw him as a teacher, a teacher whose teaching was about the kingdom of God with all of its implications and connotations and ramifications. Now, it is also clear that they not only heard Jesus say the most amazing things, but that they had seen him time and again do the most amazing things. It is the latter I want to reflect on now. From what we have seen so far, Jesus' friends and followers and disciples found him to be a unique and profound presence. They also saw him as a person of astonishing power and capability. I would say that Jesus' friends and disciples saw him as a miracle worker. But that would be misleading since our modern conception of the miraculous um, and our, our modern and our, and our use of the word miracle has only minimum correspondence to their conception of events like, say, the healing of an epileptic boy. By miracle, most people, at least most English-speaking people living in the Western world today, mean something like an intervention of God which alters the law of nature so that things cannot happen, that cannot happen, happen. Let me uh, see if I can say that uh, 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 again without stumbling over myself. 
that most English-speaking people living in the Western world today, when they use the word miraculous or miracle, they mean something like this, an intervention of God which alters the laws of nature so that the things that cannot happen, happen, or an inconceivable breach in the regular or natural pattern of events. Even scholars who know better than this make this argument. The biblical view, however, is more enlightened than our modern perspective. There are three words in the Greek New Testament that could each be translated as miracle, but which actually mean something more like a powerful act or a mighty deed, something which is special or different, or a sign, a sign pointing to someone or something as special or different. There are also three Old Testament Hebrew words which are best translated, not as miracle, but as sign, as wonder, or as a display of God's power, or as something amazingly better than anything else, or simply as things that are amazing because they are difficult to do. Here are two stories which I think can help clarify how first-century Palestinians understood miracles and therefore Jesus as a person of unusual, ex extraordinary, amazing power, a person of mighty deeds. <clears throat> the first is a personal story. My brother told more and more often as he approached the end of his life. I've written out of it in my book, The Annunciation. One day, he picked his 13-year-old daughter, Catherine, up from school on his motorcycle. As they sped along a major boulevard, a lumber truck pulled out in front of them. There was no way and no time to either stop or to go around to either end of the truck. My brother tried desperately to lay the motorcycle on its side in hopes of sliding underneath the truck and escaping decapitation. But Catherine was instinctively fighting as hard as she could to keep the motorcycle upright. The motorcycle never went down on its side. And in an instant, they were on the other side of the truck, badly shaken, but sitting upright and unscathed. My brother's attitude toward the whole incident until he died, the day he died, was one of puzzlement and wonder, but I never heard him attempt an explanation, whether natural or supernatural. But I think in his last years, it was no longer relevant to him whether there was, according to the laws of physics, a possible 
logical explanation. It was a wonder and a sign pointing to something special. My second story is fictional, and it comes from a movie which, not only because of its sex and violence, but because of its violent sex, I would never recommend to anyone. Two professional killers, professional in how detached, uninvolved, indifferent they are in dispensing cruelty and death, Jules and Vincent, are sent by their mobster boss, Marcellus Wallace, to a hotel room where four nerdy-looking young men are hiding with a mysterious briefcase that belongs to Marcellus. In the course of terrorizing them and murdering the young men in the room and retrieving the case, Vincent and Jules fail to realize that the fourth boy is hiding in the bathroom with a forty-four Magnum. Just as they are ready to leave, he springs from the bathroom, shouting obscenities and curses of death. At nearly point-blank range, he fires all five rounds of the revolver, and not a single bullet strikes Vincent or Jules. They calmly but quickly shoot him to death. And when they then look behind them at the pattern of bullet holes in the wall, they are astounded that they were not hit and killed by the young man's barrage of gunfire. Later in a coffee shop, <clears throat> Jules and Vincent have a theological discussion about their experience, their inconceivable escape from death. Jules calls it a miracle, but Vincent says what he witnessed was merely a freak occurrence. Vincent explains a miracle is when God makes the impossible possible. But this morning, he says, I don't think it qualifies. Vincent insists, Jules. Don't you see? That don't matter. You're judging this the wrong way. I mean, it could be that God stopped the bullets, or he changed Coke to Pepsi, or that he found my car keys. You don't judge stuff like this on merit. Now, whether or not what we experienced was an according to Hoyle miracle, says Jules, is insignificant. What is significant is that I felt the touch of God. God got involved. So, I don't know, for example, what according to the laws of biological science or physics happened the day blind Bartimaeus's sight was restored. What I'm certain of is that Jesus' friends believed God was involved that the power of God's Spirit was in Jesus, that God in Jesus touched the blind and the sick and the disabled and helped them heal them, that he was capable of amazing, wonderful, 
stupendous signs.